All right, well, good morning, everyone. It is a pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Trevor Eppheimer to you all. I think you all probably, I don't really need to introduce him. You all know him. But of course, when we think we know someone, we might not. So I want to just give you a little bit of a sense of who he is because uh, Trevor is a big deal. He's not just the guy that sits in the back row and has a lovely family. He also has some outstanding credentials. Uh, he is the academic dean and Messenger Williams Family Associate Professor of Theology and Ethics at Hood Theological Seminary. He has degrees from St. Olaf College, a uh, master's in divinity from Yale Divinity School, and a PhD from the Union Theological Seminary in New York. Uh, he is a, uh, obviously, as you all know, a member here at St. Luke's, and we are so thankful uh, to have him here as a member of our parish, but also to have him speaking this morning. So with no further delay, I give you Dr. Eppheimer. Thank you very much, uh, Father Black, for the introduction. Uh, and thank you to Caroline for all the publicity work she did uh, behind the scenes. I appreciate it very much. It's always a great honor to be asked to teach at St. Luke's Episcopal Church. Um, so thank you, Robert, for the invitation. And I'm just delighted to be here. Uh, but most of all, I want to thank you for coming. Uh, you. To, get, to have gotten out of bed this morning, you have to be the folk, kind of folks who got perfect attendance in elementary school, or maybe you're from the Midwest or New England, but uh, I don't know what possessed you to get out of bed on a morning when you had no business getting out of bed, but I appreciate it, so thank you for being here. Um, one of the best things I have ever read in my life is C.S. Lewis's introduction to a very old classic theological text. It's written by Athanasius, a fourth century theologian, and the title of the treatise is On the Incarnation of the Word of God. And what was so great about C.S. Lewis's introduction, what is great about C.S. Lewis's introduction to that text is he talks about that one of the best things that modern people can do sometimes is to take a break from the modern world and in his uh, wonderful turn of phrase, you put a pencil between your teeth and you go to work on an old text written uh, in a time that's not your own by a person who's from a culture that's not your own. And he said, why do you do this? What, what benefit is it to modern people to look at ancient stuff? And he said, it's a wonderful antidote to what he called chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery for Lewis is the type of thinking uh, in which you think your time, your place has all the answers. You're, the, you're superior to all other peoples who have lived at all other times, and you've got an elevated superior perspective on reality. Well, he said, you dive into an ancient text to learn that that's not the case. That there were people in the past who were very smart, who asked good questions, different questions from the ones that we do today. But if we can get into their mind space and learn to think like they did in ways that are different from us, we're gonna unlock parts of our mind, parts of our intellect, parts of our imagination, that have not been developed because the particular time and place 
in which we live. So this morning, I want you to take a break from Biden, take a break from Trump, take a break from the Iowa caucuses, take a break from 2024, and I want to go back in time, beginning in the second and third centuries, and let's do some avoidance of chronological snobbery. Let's go back and, and look at some issues uh, that ancient people thought were important, and we can then think together about why they were important to them and why they might still be important to us today. So um, this session, these two sessions, uh, this week and next week, are to help you understand the doctrine of the Trinity, its history, how it came to being, how it arose, um, and we have to start uh, with the second and third centuries because uh, it was the time that I call the theological Wild West. Right? There was no central theological authority in place that could tell Christians what it is that you must believe theologically in order to be a Christian. In many ways, it was an exciting time because it was filled with theological diversity. People were believing all kinds of things about Jesus, about the gospel, about God. And um, it's just interesting to go back and look at the diversity and plurality of views at that time. There was no Nicene Creed. There was no Apostles' Creed. It was kind of a theological free-for-all. And, and one of the, one of the um, interesting areas of theology in which there was tremendous diversity concerned the identity of Jesus Christ. Who was Jesus Christ? What made him special? Um, when I begin my theology classes at Hood Theological Seminary, the first thing I do is tell my students, God doesn't do theology. Human beings do theology. God is probably too busy to stop and do theology because God is always doing things. God is a doer. God creates, God calls, God liberates people from bondage, God saves the world, God uh, brings the church into being, God is trying to move history into a direction of peace and justice and love and forgiveness and mercy, the new creation. So God is busy doing things. And theology happens when human beings come along after God has done something and they ask themselves, well, what does it mean that God did that? What does it mean for us? What does it say about God? What does it say about this world? What does it say about the future? So those are the kinds of questions that theologians ask. And it's a human endeavor. God doesn't do it. Human beings do. Which is why then I tell my students, you have the freedom to challenge and question any kind of, any theological idea that comes across your desk. Because it's not from heaven, it's from a human being. So it, it deserves to be interrogated, questioned, thought critically about. And the doctrine of the Trinity is no exception, but it has an interesting history, a lot of twists and turns. So I'm gonna take you through some of that interesting history and again, We'll start in the second and third centuries, the theological Wild West. 
And if you look in the front page of your handout, I've got a, um, a diagram that captures some of the plurality in the second and third centuries when it comes to the question of Jesus' identity. So who is this guy, Jesus? The New Testament makes quite startling claims about him. The Apostle Paul says he is the one who's turned the page on reality. He has moved creation from what Paul called this age or this present age to the age to come. He is a game changer. He has set creation on an irreversible track towards redemption. So what kind of person would what what kind of person would be able to do all of that? Who must he be? What are some of his essential qualities that enable someone to be the most important person who has ever existed if the New Testament is to believe to be believed? So Lots of different answers to the question, who is Jesus, in the second and third centuries. Uh, there was a little band of Jewish Christians called the Ebionites. And the Ebionites, their name means the little poor ones, for whatever reason. And they said, well, Jesus is a human being, just like us. And he should be thought of along the lines of the Hebrew prophets. He's like Amos, Isaiah, Hosea, Jeremiah. He's special because he was called by God and given a commission, given a message to proclaim. But fundamentally, he's no different from you and I. He's just a normal guy. Jesus of Nazareth, who has, was commissioned by God, just like a prophet. So for the Ebionites, Jesus was a human being, just like us. What made him special was his particular calling from God. There was another group of ancient Christians called the Docetists. And um, their word comes from the Greek word dokeo, which means to seem or to appear. And they were called the Docetists because they believed that Jesus only seemed or appeared to be divine only seemed or appeared, or excuse me, only seemed or appeared to be a human being. He was not a real human being. He was a divine figure who walked through the first century uh, playing an optical trick on all of us. He looked like a human being, he acted like a human being, but he was a fully divine figure who possessed no real human qualities. Now you would say to yourself, why would someone think to say that about Jesus. Well, the Docetists believe that material reality, the created order, was fundamentally corrupt and was fundamentally evil. And they said, Jesus, if he was God's son, if he was God, true God of God, true light of true light, all that stuff, he would never take actual human flesh on himself because if he were to do that he would become corrupted by material existence and you say well why would you have such a pessimistic view of created reality of material existence well I don't know I, I, I sometimes have that view when I look in the mirror and I see this growing bald patch on the back of my head 
when my, my knee hurts and it's not working as well as it, as it should, your body can let you down. Your body gets old. Your body gets sick. Things decay. And this was a sign for the docetists that material reality was bad. And so God would never think to take that bad stuff that is our bodies on himself. So they said uh, Jesus was fully divine, but not a real human being. Another group of Christians were called the adoptionists. And in their view, Jesus Christ starts out life as a regular guy, a regular human being like you and me. But then something exciting happens to him at the moment of his baptism. This human guy gets a big promotion. He gets a promotion to son of God when the Holy Spirit descends upon him. And in that moment, God adopts him as God's son. And from that moment, the regular human being gets elevated, gets kicked up a few levels to become the son of God. He didn't start out as divine, but he then takes on an elevated semi-divine status later when he's adopted by God as God's son. That was the adoptionists. Another group of Christians were called the modalists. And they had, they believed that Jesus was God the Father incarnate. God the Father incarnate. Um, but what made them uh, unique was their belief that there was just one person who constituted God, God the Father. And it appeared to us, according to the modalists, that God was three persons. From our vantage point, God appeared to be three persons. But the, the modalist said, what's really happening is that there's one God in heaven who's always dressing up in different guises. So when it's time to be God the creator, God assumes the role of the creator. When it's time to be Jesus Christ, the one God, uh, appears in humanity as Jesus Christ. When it's time to be the Holy Spirit, Pentecost is coming, that one God changes into the Holy Spirit. So for the modalist, God is always undergoing costume changes. But for them, this is the key point, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit could never be in the same room at the same time together because it was really one guy who was constantly changing and transforming all the time. All right, just like Bruce Wayne and Batman can't be in the same room at the same time, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit could not be in the same room at the same time. Um, then there was a second century theologian named Justin Martyr who said, Jesus is the Logos incarnate. The Logos is a Greek philosophical concept. The Logos is the divine reason, the divine ordering principle in the universe. And Justin Martyr said, Jesus, whatever that is, that's what Jesus is incarnate, the Logos. So if you were a Christian in the second and third century, 
What in the world would you believe about Jesus? Everyone's saying all kinds of stuff. And you might be confused. Or you might just say, in, in this town, we believe that. This. In that town, they believe that. And, you know, that's just the way it is. Well, why couldn't we have continued in that way? Just accepting different perspectives on Jesus and letting some people believe this and we believe that and think and let think. Well, something happened. In 318, uh, Emperor, Constance, Emperor Constantine, the Emperor of the Roman Empire, signed the Edict of Milan in 313. And in the Edict of Milan, uh, Christianity was declared uh, an acceptable religion of the Roman Empire. So prior to 313, Christianity was an outlaw religion. It was a religion that was uh, under suspicion by the, the governing authorities. Christians were being persecuted. The, the Christian faith was trying to be stamped out by political leaders. But this all changed when Constantine said, no, it's on the approved list. Christians are okay. They can serve in the government. They can serve in the imperial court. We needn't be, we needn't be afraid of them anymore. Christianity was already growing quickly at this time. And the Edict of Milan, once it was signed, it increased the spread of Christianity even more. Because people who were holding back and who were afraid of being associated with an unacceptable religion, you know, now that reason for not joining was removed. Oh, the emperor says it's okay. Now we can start going to church. So the church starts to take off. Church attendance grows. More members grow. More churches spring up. And before you know it, a great majority of citizens in the Roman Empire are Christians. So, you know, politicians are no dummies back then, just like they're no dummies back now. They are interested in order, control, stability. And so once the Christian religion starts expanding in the Roman Empire, Roman imperial officials start taking an active interest in what's going on in the church, what kinds of things they're talking about. Because if some things are unsettled, unclear, if they become chaotic in the church, this could lead to chaos, uh, conflict, uh, division in society. So the emperor becomes interested in Christian theological issues uh, after 313. Uh, also in the ancient world, and I'm on the second page of your handout now, uh, there emerged two main centers of theological thinking uh, that were housed in two of the leading cities in the ancient world. Alexandria, which is in Egypt, on the Mediterranean coast, near the Nile River Delta, and Antioch, which is in that part of the world we today call Turkey. These two cities become leading centers of theological thought. It's, um, they write the books, they write the articles that pastors and bishops talk about and think about. Um, and we need to know something about these two cities on our way to understanding uh, the doctrine of the Trinity. 
Alexandria is a sophisticated city. It's a cosmopolitan city. It's, uh, it's interested in Greek philosophical thought. It wants to take Greek philosophical ideas and merge them with Christian theology because they think that, oh, the Greeks have some interesting ways of thinking about things that Christians could benefit from. Um, Antioch, by contrast, is a little more conservative. I'm trying to think of ways to understand the differences between the two cities. Uh, Maybe if you're from the Northeast, Antioch is a lot like Philadelphia. It's working class, it's pragmatic, uh, down to earth, and Alexandria would be like New York City, more sophisticated, cosmopolitan, lots of intellectual ideas flying around. Or maybe it's the difference between Greensboro and uh, the Research Triangle. But Antioch is more traditional, doesn't want to take as many risks. Uh, Alexandria is pushing the boundaries of theological thought by bringing Greek philosophy into uh, Christian theology. Um, I bring all this up because two important persons in the, that start a debate in the city of Alexandria that ends up leading to the doctrine of the Trinity come from these two different cities. The first is Alexander, who studies uh, theology in Alexandria. And the second is a guy named Arius, who studied theology in Antioch. Um, In Antioch, Arius was taught that the worst thing out there in the Christian world was modalism. Modalism is the view that God the Father takes on human flesh in Jesus of Nazareth. And Arius was told, this is a terrible theology because look at what the modalists have done to God. They've said that God has come down into creation. God, God's self, has come into creation, taking on human form. And what do you think happened to God? Well, God got infected with time. God underwent suffering. God experienced emotion. All this stuff that happens to us happened to God. And that stuff can't happen to God because if stuff that happens to us happens to God, then God is not really God. God is just a poor slob like us. So they said to to preserve God's integrity, we have to make sure that Jesus, no one thinks that Jesus is God the Father incarnate. We need, G- we need God to stay up in heaven. And we don't want God to get mixed up into the things of creation. Because if God gets mixed up into the things of creation, God is no longer God. In Alexandria, they said, the worst possible theology out there is adoptionism. The view that Jesus Christ is not fully God as God is God but is somehow less than God. And they said, this is a terrible theology because the number one human problem is death. Death 
is the central human problem facing humanity. And if Jesus Christ is to save us, rescue us from death, nothing less than God, he cannot be anything less than God in order to do that job. If, if someone rescues us from death, that person must be God, God's self, not something less. If it's something less, can't do the job of rescuing us from death. So there's Alexandria and there's Antioch. And for a while, they kept in their place, stayed in their neighborhoods, stayed in their zones, but then something happened to cross the wires between the two cities. Arius graduated from Antioch Theological Seminary. He's got a lot of student loans that he's accumulated while trying to finance his theological education, and he needs a job badly. And there are no positions available in Antioch. So he um, looks through the want ads and says, there is a job available in the city of Alexandria. And they want someone to be the dean of their school of biblical interpretation. Well, I was a pretty good biblical scholar in seminary. I'll send my resume over and I'll see if they want to hire me in Alexandria to lead their school of biblical interpretation. He said, it's a long shot. They probably don't want an outsider to to leave the school, but we'll see what happens. Well, he gets word about six or eight months later that he's been hired to lead the School of Biblical Interpretation in Alexandria. He said, oh my gosh, I can't believe they hired me. So he starts setting off to travel to Alexandria to take the new position there. And in Antioch, they throw a going-away party for him, and his theological professors are there, and they say, Arius, whatever you do, hold the line against modalism. Preserve monotheism. Don't let anyone tell you that Jesus Christ is God the Father incarnate, because if that theology starts to spread, Monotheism is over for Christians. So whatever you do, hold the line against modalism. Promise? Mary says, yes, I promise, I promise. I'll hold the line, I'll hold the line. Arius arrives in, in Alexandria, and he is introduced to Bishop Alexander of Alexandria. And Bishop Alexander of Alexandria is in the midst of a re-election campaign. He wants to serve another term as bishop. So what you did in Alexandria, if you wanted another term, you went on the campaign trail. You visited all the local pastors and all the churches, and you gave a stump speech. This is my plan for the city of Alexandria and the future of the church. And you unveiled you know, what you wanted to do in the next five to 10 years, and you were trying to gain support from the local pastors to um, re-up you for another term. And so the young Arius is there at one of Alexander's stump speeches. And Alexander says, uh, as I have done in the past, 
I will continue to hold the line against anyone who says that Jesus Christ is not God as God is God. Anyone who says that Jesus Christ is less than God will not receive an appointment in any of the theological schools, will not be allowed to preach. I am determined to stamp out this heresy and keep it at bay so it will not infect the city of Alexandria. Well, Arius is sitting there. What do you think Arius is hearing? He's saying, oh my God. The bishop of the city to which I've just moved is a heretic. He is compromising monotheism. He's trying to say that Jesus Christ is God. But there's only one God, and Jesus Christ can't also be God, because if Jesus Christ is God along with God, then we've got two gods. And if we have two gods, then we're not monotheists. And if we're not monotheists, then we can no longer have the Old Testament in our Bibles. And we have no connection to the ancient Hebraic faith. He said, my gosh, now I know why God sent me to Alexandria to take a stand against heresy. I just didn't know that the heretic would be the bishop. But look, God prepared me for a time such as this. And he, and he was reading his Bible and he said, oh, Paul says that Satan sometimes appears like an angel of light. And maybe this is what's happened. We think this is the guy who's supposed to teach the correct faith, but he's really corrupting the faith. And I'm supposed to stand up now and fight against the bishop. Well, what was Arius' motivation? Well, some people think he was sincere about his theology. He believed in theology, and he wanted to fight the bishop on theological grounds. Other scholars think that Arius was ambitious himself and wanted to be bishop and saw Alexander in his way and was going to do whatever he could to get Alexander out of office so he could then take it. Maybe Arius just couldn't read the room. Maybe he couldn't adapt to a new time and place and try to figure out why the new, this, his new city thought, that the way they, thought the way they did theologically. Uh, I don't know. Historians go round and round. What was Arius' motivation? Um, let's assume, though, for the purpose of this morning, that he was truly invested in theology, and it was the integrity of theology that he cared about. Uh, Arius is also a lot more charismatic than Alexander. Alexander's a little meek and mild, kind of a, a bookish type who just liked to sit in his room by himself and read. Arius is a dynamic teacher who quickly attracted a large following of people. People, for some reason, gravitate towards him. And all these followers that he accumulated, he, he convinced them that Bishop Alexander was a heretic. And one day he said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to march over to Bishop Alexander's house. And we're going to yell and scream outside his house and demand that he come out and resign as Bishop of Alexandria because he's a heretic. So they went down the street, gathered outside the bishop's house, and started chanting 
And the chant that they uh, were led in by Arius was, there was a time when he was not. Imagine hundreds of people saying that in unison. There was a time when he was not. So what, what did that mean? Well, they were referring, that chant refers to Jesus. There was a time when Jesus was not. They were saying, he is not God as God is God, because God is eternal. But if there was a time when Jesus was not, that means that he is not God, but is less than God. And for Arius and his supporters, he had to be less than God. There had to be a time when Jesus did not exist, because in order to uh, keep Jesus from infecting God with time, with suffering, with all the things that were down here, to keep monotheism, monotheism in the classic sense. So eventually word reaches the Roman emperor that there's this big disturbance in Alexandria. They're protesting outside the bishop's home. They want him to resign. Constantine doesn't give a darn about theology. He just knows that there's unrest in one of his leading cities, and that makes him nervous. Anyone who's in office that sees people in the streets gets nervous right away that there's chaos in society. So he, he says, this can't stand. This debate has to come to an end. We have to decide the Arius-Alexander debate once and for all. I don't care how you do it, just do it and get all these people out of the streets and let's get back to some semblance of order. So, Bishop, or excuse me, Emperor Constantine has a beach house in a little town called Nicaea, which is right outside Constantinople. That city today, Constantinople, is now called Istanbul, which is in Turkey. So he has a little beach house. He says, we're gonna get all the bishops in the area to come to my beach house, I'll pay their way, and they're gonna decide the Arius-Alexander controversy. They're gonna settle it. And I'm gonna lock them in the beach house until they decide, they can't go home. That's, that's, that's the deal. So 318 bishops travel to Nicaea. They take up residence in Constantine's beach house and they say, you must decide this debate. We cannot have all this craziness. So what was at stake when they gathered at Nicaea? What are they trying to decide? And if you could turn to this page of the handout, they are trying to decide the following question. Is the life that is in Jesus, is it God's own life? That's what Alexander says. Or is it something less, which is what Arius believes? So Alexander says, well, there's some differentiation going on up in heaven. God is more than one person. There's God the Father, and there's also another part of God called God the Son, or God the second person. And it's the second person 
this other part of God that becomes incarnate in Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is the walking, talking incarnation of the second person who's up there in heaven, God the Son. Arius says, no way, that, that's crazy. He said, we've never had more than one person up in the blue zone before. There's always been only one person in the blue zone. If you start putting more than one thing up in the blue zone, you're going to have theological chaos. Uh, this ain't right. So he, he said, this is who Jesus is. Jesus is the Logos incarnate. And the Logos is not God. The Logos is the first thing that God ever made. Before God created, God had to create the Logos. And the Logos is the divine ordering principle, the divine rationality. And God created this thing in order to bring the world into existence through it. So Jesus is that thing, the Logos incarnate. And the Logos is not God, but it's pretty darn good. It's the first and best thing that God ever made. And Jesus is that thing incarnate. And he said, look, look how neat and tidy and clean my solution is. All right, I haven't messed with the blue zone. I've kept Jesus in the green zone because the Logos is part of the green zone. It's the top, the pinnacle of the green. But he is that thing incarnate. Most of the bishops are kind of like you right now. They said, what the hell is going on? What does any of this mean? Why should we care about this? We've got our churches to run, our diocese to run. I need my apportionments. I've got to pay my staff. This is a waste of time. I'm not concerned about this. What do we, do we really have to waste time on all these fine points of theology? And uh, the Emperor Constantine says, yeah, I know, it's crazy. These egg the theology eggheads are carrying on. We have no idea what they're talking about. It's all nuts, but it's got to be settled one way or the other. So settle it. I don't care which way you do it, but when we leave here, it's got to be decided. So, Arius and his supporters get up and present their case. Alexander and his supporters get up and present their case. And eventually the bishops are ready to go home. They've been there for two months. And they said, all right, we're going to form a little commission. And we're going to decide this. And by 5 o'clock tomorrow, we'll assemble in the hall and we're going to read to you what we decided. And what was read that day uh, is the, the early stab at what we today call the Nicene Creed. All right. So that's the last page on the handout. You'll notice it's different from the one that we say in church, because the one we say in church 
is the one that was revised later in 381, and we're going to talk about that uh, next time. But the first step, the Nicene Creed, last page of the handout. They're all assembled in the hallway. They're waiting with bated breath to see which way the council decides for Alexander, for Arius. And the scribe gets up and reads, We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of all things, visible and invisible. At this point, Arius says, it's looking good for me. It is looking real good for me because I believe in one God and I think Alexander over here is trying to push two gods on us. So if they start off affirming belief in one God, that's a good sign for me. I think I got it. The scribe continues. And we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Okay. Arius says, I'm still in the game. I still got a chance. The only begotten of his father. Okay, yeah. Arius says, I'm still alive. I'm still going because I believe that that Logos is begotten of the Father and that that life is in Jesus, so I'm still alive. I still got a chance. Of the substance of the Father. Arius says, okay, I, I don't know which way this can go. This could go bad for me or this could go well for me. Of the substance with the Father, well, the Logos is a creation of God and there's something of God in the Logos. So yeah, maybe of the substance of the Father, I still got a chance. But then, comes crashing down for Arius because the scribe says, God of God. And right there, Arius knows that he's out of luck. He is lost. Jesus Christ is God of God, light of light, very God of very God. And right at that moment, Alexander is leaping up, clapping, dancing. All his supporters are cheering. Begotten, not made. Oh, the life that was in Jesus is begotten, but that's not, he was not made. It's like he is eternally processing or coming out of the Father but there's no point of origin to his procession. The, this, the life that is in Jesus is always coming out from the Father and has always come out from the Father and has never not been coming out from the Father. Begotten, not made. Being of one substance with the Father. So Arius knows right now that it's pretty much over for him. And if he had any doubts... The scribe gets to the last paragraph. So just in case you were wondering if there are any questions, whoever shall say that there was a time when the Son of God was not, as Arius did, or that before he was begotten, he was not, or that he was made of things that were not, or that he is of a different substance or essence from the Father, or that he is a creature that is not the creator, but a creature or subject to change or conversion, all that so say the Catholic and Apostolic Church anathematizes them. 
means he's canceled. He's anathematized, he's canceled, he'll never work in this town again, if you believe that. So, Arius took it on the chin. It was a definitive uh, victory for Alexander. What do you think happened after this? Everyone accepted the decision and went home and they all lived happily ever after? Just like Bush versus Gore or Dobbs versus the Jackson Women's Health Organization, the Supreme Court rules, but not everyone accepts the ruling of the Supreme Court. And so the debate goes on, and in fact it further intensifies um, because Arius stood up and said, you have done something terrible. You have messed with the blue zone. You said, that's, that's their school bell. You have messed with the blue zone. You have introduced chaos and complication in the blue zone. And now you're going to reap what you sow because we once knew who God was. But now, because of what you decided, you've got a major God problem on your hands because you have no idea who God is, what God's doing, or what in the world is going up in the blue zone any longer now that you've introduced this second reality, the second person, along with the first up in blue. And so Arius said, I'm just going to sit back and see how you deal with this. Because if you went with me, you wouldn't have a blue zone problem. But you didn't. You went with him, and now you've got some blue zone work to do. And the work that's now done in the blue zone following 325 is the work that we're going to talk about next week. So thank you for your patience and for being here on a cold morning. Thanks very much.